Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. Thank you guys. Good morning. You just never know what I'm going to bring with me. So today I'm going to be talking to you about the armor of God. So it's pretty important that we all dress ourselves with the armor of God. Without it, we are lost. So I want you to imagine a knight back in the olden days with armor from head to toe. That knight would never consider going out into battle without his armor on. He was completely dressed, like I said, head to toe. It was made out of metal. It was heavy. If you've ever seen it um, in a museum or if you know anybody who has the armor or if you've been to Shakespeare's restaurant, um, they have a set there, like the full size that you can see what it would actually look like and how heavy it was. So they wouldn't have a chance of going out without their armor on, right? You agree? I don't think so. I think it would be pretty scary to go out and face someone who was fully dressed in their armor if we ourselves were not fully dressed in the armor and prepared for what we were to face. So the armor of God is found in the book of Ephesians where we read this lesson. A couple of summers ago, we went through this whole entire lesson with our um, kids ministry. We spent the whole summer, we learned a song, we even came up and we sang the song um, for you. But I want to just go over these verses with you real quick. It's Ephesians 6, 11 through 18, which says, Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all of this, you should take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit. Let me see your sword. Put your sword up. The sword of the spirit, which is what? The sword of the spirit is what? Anybody remember what the sword of the spirit is? You got it, Mr. Pittman, right in the front. The word of God, the Bible. If you have your Bible, hold your Bible up. Got it. I love it. I love seeing all your Bibles. That is where we find the truth. That is the only truth. The word of God. So, finally, pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always be praying for all of the Lord's people. If you don't have the armor of God, it's going to be hard for you to fight against the devil's schemes. The Bible says you cannot stand up against the devil without it. So, let me show you a friend I brought with me, a couple of friends actually. So I have one friend with me. This 
guy here. His name is George, and he used to be full of the Holy Spirit, but guess what? Little by little, he made some wrong choices. He started listening to other voices instead of God's voice, and he lost pieces of his armor. His teacher told him that there was no God, and he started believing. So he lost some more of his armor. His friends started making fun of him, so he lost some more armor. And he continued to give in to the temptations of this world and not stand firm, fully dressed with the armor of God, until all of his armor was gone. He quit reading the Bible. He quit going to church. He quit being around other believers. And he just decided, without realizing it, he had a fade. It happens slowly. We give up things. We don't continue the things that we know we should keep doing. So eventually, all of his armor was gone. And then what happens? His armor's completely gone. Check him out. Do you think he has any chance without the armor of God of surviving in this world against the devil's schemes? Does he have his belt of truth? Does he have the shield of faith or the helmet of salvation? He has nothing. Poor George has given it all up without even realizing it, how quickly that happens. When he goes into battle, do you think he is going to claim victory or do you think he is going to sink and drown? I think he's going to sink. Let's see what happens. Here's poor George. He's sinking to the bottom. He didn't even realize that it. it was a slow fade. The little things that he decided not to do or the things that he decided to go ahead and do even though he knew they were wrong. So... I have another friend with me, so I want you to meet Tom. Here's Tom. He's been praying. He's been reading his Bible. He's been going to church. He's been spending time with other believers. He's made the right decisions. He's chosen not to give in and participate in the things of the world. So he's covered completely from the top of his head down to his tiny little toes with his armor. He's ready for battle. So let's see what happens to our new friend, Tom. Look what happens. He may get pushed down by the things of this world, but he's got his armor on, and he's always going to come back to the top. He was ready for battle. So listen, when you are living for God, no weapon formed against you shall prosper. When you are full of the Holy Spirit, when you are living right, and we have a right relationship with God, there is nothing that the devil can do or anyone else can do to keep you down. Thank you. Pastor Brandon comes forward. So if you remember, a couple of weeks ago, we learned what it meant to be stinky Christians, be right? Onion, yeah. uh, be an, and uh, then we learned how to be hairy Christians. And now how to be floaty? Floaty? How to be oranges. Oranges. Oh, and that goes with our children's ministry programming. Be a, too. Very be a good. citrus. Be a citrus fruit. Thank you. <laughs> Could you give her a round of applause? Thank you, Melissa. <clears throat> so last week, I, uh, 
I broke from the sermon series. I felt really convicted I needed to address an issue uh, that has become so politicized uh, that it's starting to divide the church. The issue was face masks, the social distancing, all of that stuff. And I didn't tell you which way to be. What I decided to be able to, pre- or to preach to you about was this issue of these things should not be divisive within the body of Christ. The enemy will use any tool, no matter how good it is, to put a wedge between believers in Christ and will work to destroy believers in Christ at all costs. And I've seen how he's begun to do that through this COVID crisis, through the protests, through many other things that are happening in our culture that have polarized us, not only as a culture, but it's eked its way into the church and begun to polarize us and divide us as a church. And I don't think that's healthy. And so we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 8 last week about meat that was being offered to idols and whether or not it was right to eat that meat as a Christian or wrong to eat that meat as a Christian. If you remember, we looked at Paul's writing to the Corinthians and him saying, you know, there's really nothing wrong with eating this meat because our idols aren't real. Gods aren't real. There's only one God that is real. So it doesn't matter if I eat this meat or don't eat this meat. It's not that big of a deal. But if my eating meat causes another brother or sister in Christ to stumble, then I'm not going to eat meat, if you remember that. Now, I want to continue a little bit in that same vein of thought and line of thought as we jump back in to our sermon series today, because I want to talk about battles that are worth fighting versus battles that are not worth fighting as believers in Christ. And we're going to look at two different characters today, Zedekiah from the Old Testament. Say Zedekiah. Zedekiah. Yeah, those are pretty rough words. And then uh, Jeremiah. Jeremiah. So we're going to look at Jeremiah and Zedekiah from Jeremiah in the Old Testament, chapter 38. We'll show that on the screen, but since you have your swords of the word, then I want you to go ahead and turn there when you get a chance to, okay? We are going to be reading from the New Living Translation today. It's normally what I preach from just because of its ease of read, so your translation may vary slightly from mine. Uh, Those of you that are home, I want you to turn there too. We haven't forgotten you, so make sure you turn uh, to your Bibles in Jeremiah chapter 38. All right, now... The title for today is Pressed But Not Crushed. This, again, is another term that comes from the book or the letter to the Corinthians from the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. But we are going to look at this from Jeremiah's perspective in the Old Testament in just a moment. I want to give you this brief illustration. During his tumultuous time as president, his name was Abraham Lincoln. How many of you are familiar with a guy by the name of Abraham Lincoln? How about you young ones? Have you ever heard of Abraham Lincoln? All right. Abraham Lincoln had probably one of the most tumultuous presidencies of the United States history. He was the only president to be a president during a time where our nation was literally divided in two. You say, well, we're really divided right now. Yes, but we haven't had states secede from the nation and form their own nation. So he was very unique in that he had... Um, a lot of challenges that many of our presidents have not had to face. Throughout his administration, however, Abraham Lincoln was a president under constant fire. I know we think Trump is. I know we thought Obama was or maybe George W. Bush because of the terrorist crisis that we had. But 
Abraham Lincoln was under constant fire, even from his colleagues, during the Civil War. And though he knew he would make errors in office, he resolved never to compromise his integrity. How difficult is that? When under fire and under pressure to never compromise your integrity. We're going to talk about what integrity is in a moment and what it is not. We're going to talk about what compromise is in a moment and what compromise is not. We're going to look at the definitions of those words. But Abraham Lincoln, during the term, his term as president, determined never to compromise his integrity, his truthfulness. When it would have probably been easier at times for him to throw his hands up, to make certain concessions and say, fine, I give up, I give in, I'll do this thing because it'll be easier. He determined, no, I'm not going to do this because I will take the hard road. And the hard road often requires integrity. So strong was his resolve that he once said, I desire, I desire so to conduct the affairs of this administration that if at the end when I come to lay down the reins of power, I have lost every other friend on earth, I shall at least have one friend left and that, shall, that friend shall be down inside of me. Have you ever been able to live in such a way that you could live with yourself? To make decisions in such a way that you know by the end of the day, even if everybody else is against you, that you can stand knowing that you did the right thing, even though you may not have a friend left standing next to you. It's hard. And let me tell you something. It's getting harder as a church. I mentioned last week, do you think the church in China, Indonesia, Iran, Iraq, do you think those that are under severe persecution and even for fear of losing their own lives because of what they believe in through Jesus Christ, do you think they're arguing about face masks right now? No. The truth of the matter is they're arguing about bigger issues. And they are living in countries where it is illegal to own a Bible or where it's illegal to worship in the public spaces. And so for even risking their lives to go into homes in the darkness of night to worship in small groups together and to spend hours upon hours on their knees crying out to the Lord. And yet the church of America or the church in America complains and bickers when things get inconvenient a little bit. We're living in amazing time, amazing time in history. But church, this is our time to shine. This is not our time to shrink back. And I'm not saying go out and protest and go get political. What I'm saying is be different than the world. What what I read in Scripture and have studied for a lifetime up to this point uh, is that God says, I don't want you to be like everybody else. I don't want you to be like the pagans or those out there that don't know me. I don't want you to be like the world. I want you to be like me. How many of you believe Jesus was a Democrat or a Republican or an Independent or a Libertarian or a fill in the blank. Jesus, even during his time, when 2,000 years ago, under Roman rule, the Roman Empire, one of the greatest empires in human history, ruled by an emperor and governors over different regions, 
Do you think Jesus sided with the Romans? Do you think Jesus sided with the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, the scribes, the teachers of the law? You know who Jesus sided with? His Father in heaven. Do you know how often he got away from the crowds and consulted with his Father? Why? Because his Father was the power through whom he found his strength to continue the journey as a man of integrity, as the very God of all gods himself on earth. He wrestled not against flesh and blood, and he knew that. Why? Because he himself had come from the Father to show us a different way to live. And it wasn't like the Romans, and it wasn't like the Jews. It was like God. So I digress. I've kind of gone off script, but... Here's the deal. Being a person of integrity today, being a person of integrity requires a stick to when the odds are stacked against you. When everything in you or everybody around you is crying out, please do this, you need to do that, you need to do this, you need to do that, the question you need to be asking yourself is, what does God want me to do? And when you can't answer that question, then we're in great trouble. Church, if we don't know what God would have us to do during this time of crisis, not just as a pandemic, but in great cultural upheaval, if we don't know what God would have us to do, then shooting, and shooting without aiming at the right target is going to get us in big trouble. You get, you get what I'm saying here? Pastor, what are we supposed to do? Pastor, how are we supposed to deal with this? Go to the Word the word of God has the answers. Does it answer everything? Is there anything about face masks in there? Is there anything about Black Lives Matter in there? Is there anything about any number of things that maybe we're wrestling with? Maybe not in those specific terms. But if you are a student of the word, you find yourself coming to grips with the reality that I have everything I need to live life as a man or a woman of integrity when the rest of the world is falling apart, even if the rest of the world's falling apart may affect me greatly. So let's get to Jeremiah 38 before I go off on another tangent. So Jeremiah 38, we're starting with verse 14 today, and it reads like this. One day, King Zedekiah sent for Jeremiah and had him brought the third, to the third entrance of the Lord's temple. All right, so where's the third entrance of the Lord's temple? Typically, uh, for the Jews, Zedekiah was the last king of the southern kingdom called Judah. Zedekiah would be the king under whom the Babylonians would sack Jerusalem, tear down the temple, and take him into exile along with the rest of his family. Jeremiah had been prophesying during Zedekiah's rule, saying, here's what's going to happen. The Babylonians are going to take over. God has already ordained this moment. God's judgment is imminent. He's going to allow the southern kingdom of Judah to be overthrown. But here's the deal. If you, Zedekiah, if you, your family, and all your officials will just surrender to the Babylonians, then all will go well with you. But doesn't this sound antithetical? If I were to go to President Trump today, say, I was Jeremiah and I'm going to President Trump, this is, I want you to 
Try to wrap your heads around what's going on in this case. This would be like Brandon Linhart or another pastor or prophetical leader going before the, the high king of all the land and saying, hey, you need to surrender to the Russians. You need to surrender to the Chinese. Do you catch the equivalency here? Well, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to... What are you talking about? And so Jeremiah was under great persecution by his own people. He had, been, he had been beaten. He had been left for dead at times. He had been thrown in a cistern where his knees sink up, or his feet sink up to the knees in the mud. And it was, he was going to die if they didn't pull him out. So now he's finally pulled out and, and he's in prison whenever Zedekiah calls for him another time. And he calls for him to come to the palace. So typically the, the king's palace would have been connected with the temple courts in the Jewish arena there in Judah. And so he has him brought to the third entrance of the palace, excuse me, of the temple. He says this, Zedekiah says, I want to ask you something and don't try to hide the truth. Now, Jeremiah doesn't give him an opportunity to tell him what he wants to ask. Because we go on and say, Jeremiah said, if I tell you the truth, you'll kill me. And if I give you advice, you won't listen to me anyway. And then what does he go on to say? King Zedekiah secretly promised him, as surely as the Lord your, our creator lives, I will not kill you or hand you over to the men who want you dead. And then Jeremiah goes on and starts telling him something. Well, Zedekiah didn't ask, I want to ask you a question. Because here's the deal. When you have, when a king calls for a prophet to come stand before him, the question he wants to ask is, what does God have to say about this? That's the question. We're waiting on the question, but when the prophet is called before the king, the only answer that could come is, what is God's answer to my dilemma? Do you catch this? Okay, so I don't want you to think the scripture's wrong or it's missing a piece there because when Zedekiah brings Jeremiah before him, he's saying, I want to ask you a question. And he's inferring, I want to ask you what God has to say about our dilemma right now. And Jeremiah's already, to, if you read back in chapter 37, 36, you'll already realize Jeremiah's been saying this over and over and over again for a while. So what does Jeremiah say to Zedekiah? Listen to what he says. This is what the Lord God of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says. If you surrender to the Babylonian officers, you and your family will live and the city will not be burned down. What city? This is Jerusalem, the holy city of God. This is the place and the center of worship since the time of Abraham. This is the region where Abraham took Isaac up on the mountain to sacrifice him to God as a burnt offering where God says, no, 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 don't do that. Now I know you're a man of faith that I can trust in, a man of integrity that I can build a nation on. This is the same location, historically significant. And Jeremiah is saying to Zedekiah, if you just surrender to Russia or to China, to the Babylonians, all will go well with you. I'm not saying that's what the United States needs to do. I'm just putting it in historical context. But if you refuse to surrender, you will not escape. 
The city will be handed over to the Babylonians and they will burn it to the ground. What does Zedekiah say in response? This is a moment of transparency you don't see often from kingly figures. He opens up very candidly with Jeremiah and he says, but I'm afraid to surrender. For the Babylonians may hand me over to the Judeans who have defected to them and who knows what they'll do to me. Here's what was going on. The pressures were coming from without. Judah was pretty much under siege. Really the only thing left was the city of Jerusalem that was a walled in city in the temple of God. There were Judeans who were under Zedekiah's rule who come to the, who'd come to the place where they're like, I think our chances are better with the Babylonians. If we surrender now, they may be graceful to us and not kill us all. But if we fight against them, we're as good as dead. And so there were many defectors. Zedekiah was not a great king. And so Zedekiah knew that these guys and these ladies and these families have all defected. Now, if the Babylonians take over, if I surrender, they're going to torture me by handing me over to my own people who defected to them. And who knows what they'll do to me? But what did Jeremiah promise him straight from God? All will go well with you. You're going to be okay. Who do you trust? Zedekiah. Do you trust the God of heaven and earth, or do you trust your own instincts, which are all too human? Who knows what they'll do to me? And Jeremiah replied, I would have said, if I was Jeremiah, okay, whatever. Jeremiah replies, listen, you won't be handed over to them if you choose to obey the Lord. Your life will be spared and all will go well for you. But if you refuse to surrender, listen to this. This is what the Lord will do to you. Or has revealed to me, pardon me. All the women left in your palace will be brought out and given to the officers of the Babylonian army. All the women. Well, it was customary during those days, even for Jewish kings, to have multiple wives. And if they didn't have multiple wives, they would have multiple concubines. A concubine is basically a sex slave for the king. And so we know that um, Solomon had 700 wives, 300 concubines. He had 1,000 women at his disposal. He had a harem, if you will, which is much like the pagan kings of those days and age would have that it infiltrated the Jewish system in many regards or had been perfected by the Jewish system with all these women. So it, basically, here's what Jeremiah is saying. All the women in your harem will be taken out and given to the officers of the Babylonian army and then listen what's going to happen with those women. The women will taunt you saying, well, what fine friends you have. They have betrayed and misled you. When your feet sink in the mud, they left you to your fate. Basically saying, the women will taunt you saying, you really didn't have any people that were friends with you. They only liked you because of your status as king. Now look at you. All your wives and your children, they will be led out to the Babylonians and you will not escape. And you will be seized by the king of Babylon, and this city will be burned down. And then Zedekiah said to Jeremiah, let me stop there for a second. 
Do you know what happened? It happened just as Jeremiah had said, because guess who didn't surrender to the Babylonians? Zedekiah never surrendered. You know, read a little bit further on in Jeremiah. This is what happened to Zedekiah. He was taken by the king. His wives were taken, distributed to the officers of the Babylonians' army. Do you know what happened to Zedekiah's sons? They took Zedekiah, they stood him in the public place. They took Zedekiah's sons and they executed every one of them in front of Zedekiah. And then after that, they gouged out his eyes so that the last thing he saw was his children taking their last breath. And they didn't kill him. They wanted him to suffer for the rest of his days, having only seen the very last images of his family dying in front of his very eyes. Zedekiah, if you obey the Lord, he's going to take care of you. No matter how bad you've messed up, no matter how bad things have gone, no matter how much you've compromised, if you just do the right thing, he will see you through this. He is a God of grace and of mercy and of love and forgiveness. If you just do the right thing, it's not too late. Then Zedekiah said to Jeremiah, don't tell anyone you told me this or you will die. Why? Because Zedekiah would do it. My officials may hear that I've spoken to you. And they may say, tell us what you and the king were talking about when he brought you into the palace. If you don't tell us, we'll kill you. If this happens, just tell them that you begged me not to send you back to Jonathan's dungeon for fear that you would die there. And that is actually what Jeremiah did back in chapter 37. Please don't send me to Jonathan's dungeon. I'm going to die there. And so he says, listen, you remember when you did that before? Do it again. Don't tell them the conversation we had. Sure enough, verse 27, it wasn't long before the king's officials came to Jeremiah and asked him why the king had called for him. Why did he call for you? What did he want, what did he want to tell you? But Jeremiah followed the king's instructions and they left without finding out the truth. No one had overheard the conversation between Jeremiah and the king and Jeremiah remained a prisoner in the courtyard of the guard until the day Jerusalem was captured by the Babylonians. Really quickly, here's the key point this morning. Standing with God will not make you popular with the world, but it will save you from the world. Let me say that again. Standing faithfully for God, no matter what the consequence or cost, may not make you popular with the world, but it will save you from the world. Zedekiah, the first point here, was a man of compromise. So what is compromise? What is the, so compromise, a lot of times we get in our minds that compromise is this, uh, all right, uh, I'm, I'm going to make a treaty with you. We've been battling this out, but okay, we're going to come to the table of treaty and peace, and we're going to make a tr uh, peace agreement, and we're going to compromise. I won't get my way completely. You won't get your way completely. That's one form of compromise. But this isn't the type of compromise that I'm talking about with Jeremiah, Jer or excuse me, Zedekiah. Zedekiah, the word compromise, and there are multiple definitions, but the word here that I'm talking about is this. It's a verb, and it means to expose or to make vulnerable to danger, suspicion, or scandal. It also can mean to jeopardize something, all right? King Zedekiah was this man of compromise. He was willing to jeopardize not only himself, but the city, God's temple, 
Guess what the Babylonians did? Because Zedekiah did not surrender. The Babylonians came in, they sacked Jerusalem, just like a quarterback would be sacked on the field. They tore the walls down. They burned everything in the city, which would have been customary of the nations of the day to come in and take over a city. They would burn even the houses down. They would burn everything down to the ground. The temple was torn down stone by stone. And now there is no more Jewish nation. This is 586 B.C., And there is no more Jewish nation. The people had been exiled. This is called the diaspora. What the Babylonians did is they took mercy on most of the people, but there were many who died in the slaughter. And the ones that were left that were not a threat to the Babylonian kingdom would have been uprooted and taken to the far-off regions of the Babylonian kingdom so that when you divide them out, they can't coalesce, come back together, and be a bigger threat. That's what the Assyrian kingdom did before the Babylonians. But Zedekiah had an opportunity to make a compromise without compromising his values because God said, if you surrender, it's going to go well for you. But Zedekiah's pride wouldn't allow this. Think about what he says. He comes to Jeremiah, brings Jeremiah in secretly, but he knows his officials are watching. But nobody else is in the meeting. All right, tell me the truth. What is God saying? What is he telling you? So he obviously had enough gumption about him to say, I want to know what God really thinks. But how many times do you and I come before God in prayer? God, I really want to know what you think. Tell me what you really think. And he says, here's what I think. And you're like, oh, I don't like that answer. Mm. All right. Since I prayed in silent, don't tell anybody I talked to you. How many times do, are we afraid to pray in public? Because for fear we'll be looked at kind of weird. I know they're Christian, but I'm watching, what are their actions saying? How how are they living their lives? Let me go to godly counsel, get godly counsel. Somebody I know who prays all the time and isn't ashamed and is a man or a woman of integrity. Let me go to them. I've been praying about this and I feel confirmed in my spirit, but let me go and talk to so-and-so about this. And -and so-and-so confirms what has already been confirmed to you. And you're like, oh, I just don't think I could do that. And so we compromise our own integrity by not doing what God's calling us to do. Sarah Lee and I have traveled the eastern part of the United States in ministry. God has put a calling on our lives to go from here to there to here to there. Some of the places we never really wanted to go. But because the obedience to God has led us to these places, he's always blessed in ways that have blown our minds. He's blessed our family. And he's shown us how big the world is compared to our finite human thinking. He's shown us how big his love and mercies are compared to my own finite human thinking. It's about obedience. Some of you may be called to a different job. 
You may be called out of a group of friends that is not good to hang around with. You may be called out of a lifestyle that is destructive. You may be right now being called out of a place that doesn't seem to feel right, but you know is the right thing to do. And like Zedekiah, you have a choice. You can either suffer the utter destruction by not giving in to what God desires of you, or you can surrender to him and allow him to come in and clean you up and save you from the enemies that want to destroy you. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Some of you, this may be falling on deaf ears because you don't have a clue. It's not meeting you at a place of need. You see, there are stark black and white distinctives in the Bible. Do you believe that? I think the Bible has almost become an antiquated thing in our culture. So, you know, the Bible doesn't hold the authority that it once did in our nation's, uh, in our nation's sight and understanding. The Bible should not be revered as a God, but it is a word of truth from God. It is a standard for living life and for making decisions. And it has black and whites in there, but yes, it has gray areas. And those gray areas we have to allow to be influenced by the black and white areas and by the directives of the Holy Spirit in our lives. There are battles in life that are worth fighting. I mentioned this last week, and yet there are others that are not. Zedekiah was not to fight this battle with the Babylonians. God had already determined it's over with. Zedekiah. It's over. Your kingdom is done. I'm done with you as a people, as a nation. But if you'll just do this one thing, I'll still spare your life. Think about, God gets a bad rap in the Old Testament as being a God of wrath and judgment. Ah, he's a, such a different God than he is in the New Testament through Jesus. But he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if you're willing to open your eyes, to open your ears and see, you can see how patient and loving God is. He's telling Zedekiah, it's bad. You guys have gone to the, beyond the pale and I'm done. I'm wiping the nation out. But if you'll just do this one thing, I'll still protect you. You go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. In the fall of the garden, Adam and Eve have ruined it. They've disobeyed God's one rule. But do you see something extremely significant by the end of that chapter? That Adam and Eve, as a provision from God, walk out of the garden clothed with animal skins. Isn't it just like a loving parent who has to discipline his children, but also provides a path of love and care through that discipline? Where did the animal skins come from that clothed Adam and Eve as they left the garden to go into the wilderness that was rough, rugged, full of thorns and weeds and briars and all of that? Where did the skins come from? God made the first sacrifice. Adam and Eve, as soon as you eat the fruit of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. Well, there was a death, and the first death in the Bible is of animals as a propitiation or a covering of the sin, and physically it covered their bodies from the rough world from without. That is the grace and the love of God. And then we come to Zedekiah. Zedekiah, I have to discipline. This is going to happen. I'm not turning back from my punishment, but if you'll just do this one thing, I'll watch over you and your family. All will go well with you. Just obey me. 
and it won't go bad. What battles are you willing to fight? Which ones are you compromising and not fighting? There are battles worth fighting. There are life and death battles that this world throws at us. But not every battle is worth fighting. I mentioned this last week. You can fight a thousand battles on a thousand hills, but the ones that are worth fighting are the ones that have eternal significance. And if you spend all of your energy fighting every single battle that comes your way that has no eternal significance, you're not going to have the strength to fight the battles that do have eternal significance. There are stark black and white distinctives that we have to look at and we have to judge. Is this worth fighting or not? When I was younger, I would fight every battle. I had the energy. I was a hothead at times. I had a ton of pride. I still told you last week I struggled with that. And so my tendency is to push back, push back, push back. But God lovingly, through his rebuke, has shown me time and time again, don't fight that battle. Don't fight that one. This one's not worth fighting. That one over there is worth fighting. Fight this one. Don't fight that one. And if you're willing to follow in the footsteps of Christ and listen to the promptings of the Holy Spirit, you will fight the right battles and you will win every time because God is on your side. But here's what we tend to do, isn't it? God, I'm fighting this battle. Come fight with me. I'm fighting this battle. Come fight with me. But God says, no, no, no. I'm fighting this battle. You come fight with me. Who's the commander of your army? Is it you or is it God? Whose leadership are you following, your own or God's leadership? Well, I don't know what God wants. Again, get into the word, get into prayer. We think it's got to be more than that. We've got to go to this conference or listen to this speaker online or do this, do that. A Bible, Bibles are a dime a dozen around this place. If you don't have one, take a pew Bible home with you. Begin to read it. And if you don't understand it, come back. We'll talk about it. You need to be digging in because that's where God's word is that can help you through this life's journey to know what battles are worth fighting and which ones are not. The Bible is replete with people who have fought the wrong battles over and over and have messed up royally and have fallen flat on their faces when if they had just listened to God, he would have said, That's, I didn't call you to fight that battle. I didn't call you to, to defend me. I didn't call you to do this thing or that thing. I'm calling you here and you're fighting over there and you're like, come help me. No, you come help me. Come help me. Sorry, I digress. Here we go. How do we fight these battles? The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the only offensive weapon. All those are defensive weapons. Did you catch that? Every single one of those are defensive. The only offensive weapon we have is what? the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, I've seen people take that sword and beat people over the head with it and bludgeon them to death. That's not how we use the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. It is to be sprinkled as seasoning in conversations, to enlighten and illuminate and to be salt that refreshes and purifies. It is not to slash people open and leave them gutless, and I've seen people do that with the Word of God. It is not a sword to kill. It is a sword to reveal. It divides 
the marrow. It it divides as a double-edged sword. It is a precise instrument, not a hacking tool to tear down rough vines in the forest. Okay? All right. Jeremiah, man of integrity, real quick. What is integrity? It's a noun in this case, and it means adherence to a moral and ethical principle, soundness of moral character, honesty, the state of being whole, entire, or undiminished. That's what integrity means here. What moral and ethical principles do you adhere to? You see, Jeremiah was standing before a guy who could have killed him right on the spot or had him killed right on the spot. If you said something contrary to a king in that day and age, they would have left you gutless. They would have cut you. They would have hung you. They would have had your head cut off. Jeremiah knew. And what did he say? If I tell you what God's telling me, you'll either have me killed or you won't listen to me anyway. Have you ever had conversations like that with people? Have you ever had conversations like that with anybody in your family? If I tell you this, you're just going to get angry with me and bite my head off. Or if I tell you this, here's what's really going to happen. You're not even going to, why do you even care what I have to say? So Jeremiah standing before Zedekiah, and Jeremiah, as a man of integrity, points out the truth of the situation. You could basically kill me for telling you what I'm getting ready to tell you, or you just are going to ignore it. So why do you want me to waste my breath? You haven't listened to me yet. And Zedekiah says, no, 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 please tell me. I won't kill you. I promise. And Jeremiah, as a man of integrity, says the hard truth to the man who can hold his life in his hands. When was the last time you stood in front of opposition and you you said the hard things that needed to be said, but you said them in a tone of love, even though you knew they were going to be rejected or somebody was going to fight you? Ladies and gentlemen, listen to me. Church, I want you to listen to me real quick. You at home, listen to what I'm saying. There is a war going on for the souls of men and women across this globe. It is a battle that has been fought since the fall in the garden in Genesis chapter 3. There is an enemy who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy all of, all of humanity. There is a heaven and there is a hell. And I know there's a popular theology out there that debates whether or not there really is a hell or really is a heaven. But it's just our way of being dismissive and trying to find alternative ways to get to make the gospel palpable. Here's the truth. You can reject Jesus. He's not going to force himself on you. But if you reject Jesus to your dying breath, it's not that God's saying, I can't wait to punch you into hell. It's with sorrow that he bids you farewell. Do you understand this? In Matthew chapter 7, he does say, There are many who will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this in your name and that in your name and this in your name and that in your name? And he will look at me and say, Depart from me, for I never knew you. I don't think it's one of those, Depart from me, for I never knew you. (laughs) I think it's one of these, Depart from me, for you really never gave me the chance to know you. And if you had, I would be looking you square in the eye saying, welcome home. Well done, good and faithful servant. I don't think God takes joy in discipline. 
but he disciplines those he loves. And as he disciplines those he loves, he forms and shapes us into these mighty men and women of faith. If you're willing to, to, to with, withstand the discipline he pours out, when you mess up, you can become stronger as you become corrected. What does, what does the blacksmith do when they're making swords? I, I went through this you know, phase of, a couple of years ago watching these blacksmiths on YouTube and how they form and shape the metal. And they take a block of steel, super hardened steel, and they will make that super hardened, purified steel even harder. Because what they'll do is they'll put it in the fire and they'll heat it to 1,500, 2,000 degrees and it is glowing red hot. They'll bring it out and they'll start pounding it with a hammer and it flattening it out. You know what they'll do to it once it does that? Then they'll stick it back in the fire. And then they'll pull it back out and then they'll fold it over and they'll pound it and they'll do anywhere from 20 to 30 folds, if not more, in this steel to make a, to make a sword that will not break in battle. They make the, the, the steel so strong that it has the integrity to withstand whatever it comes up against. And then they will pull it back out and they'll beat it again. They'll stick it back in and it takes hours and days and days and hours. And if you go to a really good blacksmith to get a sword that is a real sword, it can take weeks if not longer to get that sword. Why? Because they keep sticking it in the fire, purifying it even more, folding it over, beating it together again, sticking it in the fire, pulling it out, folding it over, beating it back flat again until it is so strong. Many of us can't withstand one flame from the fire of purification. And we buckle, we melt, we walk away. But men and women of integrity don't compromise. They're willing to continue to be purified. Well, I thought when I came to Christ, it was going to be so much easier. This fluffed up, flowery gospel that you may hear from some pulpits or some YouTube pages or some podcasts is not the gospel I read in Scripture. Jesus says, listen, when you follow me, it's going to get harder. When you follow me, people are going to persecute you. When, and you heard me quote this from the pulpit before. Remember, when they hate you on account of me, they hated me first. The seeds scattered on the different soils. The only seed that's able to sprout and grow good, 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 a good harvest is the one where the plant can grow deep roots. The rest of them die, wither, fade, or don't even get a chance to grow. Which soil are you? Which man in this story are you? Or which person? Are you Jeremiah or are you Zedekiah? Our nation is changing. The world is changing. It's been changing since the beginning of time, since the first sin ever committed. Guess what? It's been changing. And every change is not for the faint of heart. And the only way to withstand the change and the changes that come is by standing on a firm foundation of Jesus Christ. And allowing him as the blacksmith 
or as the the blacksmith to purify you or the gardener to prune you. Let me close with this. I want you to imagine all the obstacles that a person could face if they were running from, say, New York City to San Francisco. I think of Forrest Gump when I think of that. You know, there's a, there's a long segment in there where Forrest Gump, after, after Jen Knight leaves him, you know, that one time, he's just like, I don't know what to do. And so he just started off running. You remember that? And he, yeah, just running. And he ran, and he ran from one coast to the other, and then he ran back, and he ran back again, and he ran back, and a lot of inventions came from that. If you remember the smiley face t-shirts and all that and all that. Nevertheless, so imagine what difficulties would come if you were to take off running from New York to San Francisco. What what do you think would happen? Well, there's actually a man who accomplished this task, and it wasn't Forrest Gump. And he mentioned a a rather surprising difficulty that came, something that he didn't expect and nobody else expected. Was it it going through the Rocky Mountains? Was it going uh, through the hot, arid, dry deserts? You know what the one thing this guy said was the toughest thing he had to battle running from New York to San Francisco? Sand and his shoes. You ever get a little pebble or rock in your shoe? Now, he wasn't just running highways and byways. He'd run off roads. He'd run through these different nature paths and stuff. You know, the shortest, shortest uh, route between two points is a straight line. So the straightest he could go, he would take these routes. But the most difficult thing this man had to encounter wasn't the rough terrain, but pebbles, small little pebbles and sand in his shoes. Because what happens after a while when you're running miles and miles and miles every day when you have sand in your shoes. Those small little irritations can cause abrasions that truly can cripple you for the run of life. Great or small, I think there are things in life that push us to the breaking point. But if we keep our eyes fixed on Christ, we keep our eyes fixed on the goal, we're going to win this race. We do well to remember the Apostle Paul's words in his letter to the Corinthian church. Listen to this as our worship team comes forward. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 through 18. We are pressed on every side by troubles, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are hunted down, but never abandoned by God. We are knocked down, but we are not destroyed. Through suffering, our bodies continue to share in the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be seen in our bodies. Yes, we live under constant danger of death because we serve Jesus so that the life of Jesus will be evident in our dying bodies. So we live in the face of death, but as this has resulted in eternal life for you. But we continue to preach because we have the same kind of faith the psalmist had when he said this. Listen up. I believe in God, so I spoke. You see, we know that God who raised Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us to himself together with you. All of this is for your benefit. And as God's grace reaches more and more people, there will be a great thanksgiving and God will receive more and more glory. That is why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day. 
for our present troubles are small and won't last very long. Do you believe that? The troubles you're going through right now may seem not only life-altering, but life-crushing. But Paul, who had been imprisoned and beaten and stoned and shipwrecked and bitten by poisonous snakes and the like, our present troubles are small. They won't last very, very long, yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them, and they will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles we can now see. Don't focus on the troubles you now see. Don't focus on the viruses. Don't focus on the protests. Focus on Christ and ask him, what would you have me do during these crises? For these things we see now will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see will last forever. COVID-19 won't be in heaven, ladies and gentlemen. You won't be wearing masks in heaven. We won't be susceptible to disease or virus, withering, fading, or death. There's only life abundant in heaven. For these light and temporary trials we faced, they may be crushing, but they don't crush us to the point of non-existence. You see, standing with God may not make you popular with the world, but it will save you from the world. Many of you may need prayer this morning. As I mentioned, if you don't want social distancing and you want somebody to pray with you, come to my right, your left. Somebody will pray with you over here. If you want to be socially distanced, our altar to my left, your right, you can spread yourselves out and pray to the Lord there. But guess what? You don't have to come down front. God can hear you wherever you are. It's not like he just has a phone down here he can reach you, okay? But if you need prayer, you want prayer, you desire prayer from a man or a woman of faith that can come alongside you and champion you in whatever troubles you're facing, don't compromise. Come up. Become a person of integrity. Let me pray. Father, thank you for, thank you for loving us in spite of ourselves. Thank you for your mercies, God, that you give us even when we aren't worthy to receive your mercy. Thanks for reminding us, even in cases like Zedekiah's from Jeremiah 38, that even when punishment comes, your desire is to love and protect us through that. That what we need to do is to obey you because you are love, you are holy, and you care for us. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Main is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.